I'm going to read from verses 34 to 44 in our chapter in Jeremiah, chapter 51, beginning in verse 34, it says Nebuchadnezzar. The king of Babylon has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me up like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has spit me out. Let the violence done to me and my flesh be upon Babylon. The inhabitant of Zion will say, and my blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea. Jerusalem will say, therefore, thus says the Lord. Behold, I will plead your case and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. Babylon shall become a heap, a dwelling place for jackals and astonishment and a hissing without an inhabitant. They shall roar together like lions. They shall growl like lions whelps in their excitement. I will prepare their feasts. I will make them drunk that they may rejoice and sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake, says the Lord. I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams with male goats. Oh, how Shishak is taken. Oh, how the praise of the whole earth is seized. How Babylon has become desolate among the nations. The sea has come up over Babylon. She is covered with the multitude of its waves. Her cities are a desolation, a dry land in a wilderness, a land where no one dwells, through which no son of man passes. I will punish Bel and Babylon. And I will bring out of his mouth what he has swallowed and the nation shall not stream to him anymore. Yes, the wall of Babylon shall fall. Remember the theme of Jeremiah. Warning. Judgment. Babylon had conquered the surrounding kingdoms and nations. But they seemed to have a special hatred, a special persecution, a special animosity for the Jewish people. Most of you know that there's a term that is used to describe that kind of special hatred for the Jew. It's called anti-Semitism. The Jews were the object of ridicule and prejudice and mistreatment. And it is clear that Babylon, as it consumed the surrounding countries, clearly they enslaved the people. But there was a special, special ridicule, special prejudice and mistreatment for the Jewish people. And this prompts a strong complaint from the people of God in verses 34 and 35. And in response to the complaint, the Lord promises that he will avenge his people in verses 36 through 44. And then the Lord will command the people to flee Babylon to escape the coming judgment on the evil empire in verses 45 through 54. Now, remember what you've already learned, that Babylon is a geographical place in history, but it's also a mental and emotional and a spiritual state of mind. 
Babylon is everything that stands in opposition to God. Babylon becomes a synonym for the world. It's not just any world. It's the religious world that is in opposition to God. It's the commercial world, the economic system that opposes God. It's the political world that stands in opposition to God. So Babylon is a mental state of mind. It is an economic system. It is a religious system. It is a political system. Think of the sum and the substance of all that humanity has to offer in opposition to God. There's a reason why Babylon is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. Remember, it's shortly after the flood of Noah. The world has been judged and human beings begin their ascent, their proliferation, the population booms. And the first thing that human beings do is they build a city. And the very first thing that they do in building that city is they construct a political system and a commercial system and a religious system that defies God. And that's the point. And that's why the Lord will command the people to flee Babylon. The Lord promises a final retribution against Babylon in verses 55 through 58. So again, looking at verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me up like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has spit me out. I'm sure you grew up in mostly the same world that I did. Have you ever heard the expression, he got chewed up and spit out? This is part of what's being said. Remember, just like Babylon is the evil system that stands in opposition to God, Nebuchadnezzar himself becomes a type of a future world leader. Remember in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is spoken of in the book of Daniel as that head of gold and the first great king. And it was the Lord himself who said uh, concerning Nebuchadnezzar that he's been made the king of the world and all of the commercial system and the political system and even the religious system was under the jurisdiction, if you will, of Nebuchadnezzar. And remember what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do. He's trying to undo the judgment of God from Genesis chapter six. It was in Genesis chapter six that God confounds the languages and human beings spread all over the earth. And so Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, like evil Borg empire, is trying to assimilate all of the people back so that they will have one culture, one language, one religion. And of course, it's a culture and a language and a religion that's beholding to Nebuchadnezzar. The image in the text in verse 34 is is sort of like the way a person would attack a jar of food and empty the jar. It would be like me going to California and I go up to the In-N-Out Burger and I haven't had a double-double animal style in a year. And I want to I just will consume that hamburger. I will inhale it. And, and he describes Nebuchadnezzar looking at Israel and Jerusalem and Judea like a jar of food. And he literally cleans the jar out, empties the jar. And so it becomes a picture, if you will, of the world that will swallow you. 
And by the way, that's the way the world sees you. The world doesn't see you with compassion and sensitivity. You know what the world sees you as? As a commercial unit, as a person who either is a consumer, someone who plunders, or is plundered. The world looks at you as an opportunity to either sell you something or take something from you. The world will chew you up and spit you out. When I was a little boy in Southern California in the Mojave Desert, there were all kinds of different animals living all around. And the one you might be surprised to discover that in the Mojave Desert, there are owls. And the owls, of course, come out at night and they eat rodents and they eat baby rabbits and they eat mice. But what you may not know is when they eat these things, they will consume whatever it is that they have have found. And then they will spit out or vomit out the bones once they're through with them. Sort of like the way a snake will swallow its prey whole and then it will go through this absorption process. And this is exactly what the world is like a serpent that swallows you whole and then digests and then vomits out the remain of its victims. The world will entice you. It will solicit you. It will try to manipulate you and persuade you to follow it. And so in verse 35, look what it says. Let the violence done to me in my flesh be upon Babylon. The inhabitant of Zion will say, and my blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea. Remember, Chaldea is the region. Babylon is the city. It stands in contrast to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of God. Babylon is the city that stands in opposition to God. The images of intense persecution and deep oppression. And so the, the cry is the cries of the children in captivity. Let The violence done to me and my flesh be upon Babylon. It's a solicitation. Let the wickedness and the oppression and the evil that's been done to me be done to them. Because of the terrible persecution, the captives in exile cry out to God for the wrongs that have been done against them. And they cry out for justice. And so Babylon deserved God's judgment. Babylon deserves God's vengeance and God's justice. And you see, there are many people who who because they have a misunderstanding both of judgment and justice, they think about judgment and justice in human terms. But no matter how good you are, you're never going to be as good as God. And no matter how holy you are, you're never going to be as holy as God. And and no matter how smart you are, you're never going to see things as clearly as God does. And so God makes it abundantly clear that he's going to right every wrong. And so how will God punish Babylon? He will visit the world system with a series of divine judgments, just like what happened when the children of Israel were held captive in Egypt. There were a series of plagues that were brought on to the people of Egypt. And there's going to be a series of judgments that come on the physical 
people of Babylon, just like the text says, but it becomes a type and a picture of a future judgment that the very real God will visit against the commercial system and the political system and the religious system that stands in opposition to God. And so in verse 36, look what it says. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will plead your case and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. So there's a series of judgments. And the first judgment is spoken of in verse 36. What does divine retribution look like? Well, the Lord will avenge his people by drying up the rivers and cutting off the city's water supply. In other words, what does judgment look like? Remember, Babylon is a city... On the Euphrates. And so the Lord says, you're dependent on water. I mean, there's certain things that we can't live without. Food, clothing, shelter. But there's something even more seminal, vital. You can live for about four minutes without air. You can live for about three days without water. And so the Lord speaks of a judgment of drying up the river, cutting off their water supply. In verse 37, it says Babylon shall become a heap, a dwelling place. When it says a heap, it means a junk heap. It means a garbage dump, a heap of ruins, a haunt for jackals, the object of scorn and and contempt and ridicule. And so the Lord speaks of a series of judgments. First, he cuts off their water supply. Second, he makes the city a heap. He ruins it. He turns it into a desolation, the object of scorn and contempt and ridicule. And then in verse 38, they shall roar together like lions. They shall growl like lions whelps. Who's growling? Who's roaring? It's the people of Babylon. It's the people who are caught up in the world system. And why are they roaring like a pride of lions instead of feeding on prey? The picture that God draws, the image that he gives to the reader is imagine where the only thing that you have to eat is what God gives you. And guess what's for supper? It's not like what. What's that guy's name? Elliot um, beef. It's what's for dinner. You know what I'm saying? Beef. It's what's for dinner. The lions. They're roaring. The people of the earth, they're roaring and they're growling because they're used to eating their prey. And the Lord shows up and says, I'm going to be serving dinner tonight. And the thing that I have on the agenda. Judgment. How do you think they're going to react? They shall growl like lions whelps. In their excitement, I will prepare their feasts. I will make them drunk that they may rejoice and sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake, says the Lord. What will happen when the Babylonians feast and feed on the wrath of God? They will sleep the sleep of death. That's the image. That's the picture. 
That's what happens when a real world that stands in opposition to God and the plans of God and the purposes of God. And so imagine the world in which we live in commercial Babylon, religious Babylon, political Babylon. We live on a planet. We live in a world where people shake their fist at God and they reject God and they rebel against God. And when you as a Christian say, hey, you know what? This world is going to burn and one day God's going to judge this world. And they laugh at you. Hey, do you know that the Bible says that uh, God will, like a fiery furnace, consume the things on this planet and they laugh? And in verse 40, it says, I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams with male goats. It's a Middle Eastern image when shepherds would sort of harvest their flock. Remember, people would eat lambs and like rams with male goats, the male goat is the one that leads the ram to its ultimate death. In other words, they will follow false leaders who will lead them into the slaughter. All the while, they're thinking they're running for safety, that they're going to be protected, but they're not going to be protected because God has ordained it. Verse 41, oh, how Shishak is taken. Oh, how the praise of the whole earth is seized. How Babylon has become desolate among the nations. The Lord declares the certainty of the destruction of Shishak. And when you read Shishak, think code word. Operation Babylon. When our troops first went into the Middle East, they had Operation Desert Storm. And this is God's Operation Shishak. The Lord declares with certainty the destruction of Babylon. The city praised throughout the earth, conquered and scorned among the nations. And so, again, here is the idea. How is it possible to take this wonderful city, this impregnable city, this commercial and political and religious center of all of humanity, if you could possibly have gone back in time and space and occupied this city, you would have thought it could never fall. It can it could never be destroyed. But look what it says in verse 42. The sea has come up upon over Babylon. She is covered with the multitude of its waves. Babylon is in a desert located on a river. It's far, far, far from the Gulf. But the picture is a wave of judgment and the wave is so great and so overwhelming that it will swallow Babylon the way a tsunami washes on a shore and takes everything with it. The Lord will cause Babylon to disappear as if she were an island swallowed by the oceans, covered by the waves. Look what it says in verse 43. Her cities are a desolation, a dry land and a wilderness, a land where no one dwells, through which no son of man passes. The picture is of utter isolation, desolation, where no one lives. And this prophecy has never been fulfilled. That prophecy has never been fulfilled. Clearly, when 
Cyrus overran the city, it still stood. If you march a hundred years into the future and there is Alexander and he's facing the walls of Babylon, which are one three hundred feet high. That's a hundred yards straight up. It's eighty six feet across. It's like a super highway that is a hundred yards straight up. If you would have looked at it, you would have said impregnable, impassable, impossible to defeat. But the Lord says it's going to be utterly ruined, utterly desolate. No one will live there. When will this take place? When will this prophecy be fulfilled? You know, when we're done with our study, we're going to do a series of studies of the wars that lead up to Armageddon and the coming of Jesus Christ. And we're going to have a brief picture of what that might look like. And look what it says in verse 44. I will punish Bel in Babylon. Remember, Bel is another word for Marduk. It is the religious center in Babylon. I will punish Bel in Babylon. In what sense? Remember, Babylon is the fountain of false religion. If you think of every single human religion that exists on the planet Earth, do you know what all religions on the planet Earth have in common? They find their origin in Babylon. Do you know what else they have in common? They have a seminal, singular Thing that each and every one of them embrace. That there's salvation apart from God's revelation. In other words, every human religion has one thing in common. It is the idea, they toy with the idea that you can be saved apart from God, apart from grace, apart from Jesus, apart from the revelation of God in Christ. Every single human religion will say, you know what the problem is? You're ignorant. And if you have the right information, then you'll be happy. You'll be fine. Or you can work your way to heaven if you just are good enough or strong enough or virtuous enough. There's got to be a way to go to heaven apart from Christ and apart from his sacrifice. But it's not going to happen. I will punish Bel in Babylon. Human religion must of necessity face God's judgment. And look what it says. And I will bring out of his mouth what he has swallowed. Do you understand what it's saying? Babylon has swallowed the captives and the children of Judah and Jerusalem. They have swallowed them. And the Lord is is saying, guess what? I am going to force Babylon to vomit you out, to release you. In other words, they thought that they had you, but I am going to release you. I will bring you out of his mouth what he has swallowed. In other words, the picture is of God rescuing the captives. And it becomes a picture of him rescuing you. You know what all of us have in common? Each and every one of us were lost in darkness and wickedness and sin. We were slaves. We were captives. We were captives to our own lusts and our own desires and our own wickedness and our own wanderings. But here's what God did. He rescued you. He rescued me. Satan wanted to kill you and the world wanted to swallow you. And the evil darkness of this world wanted to consume you. 
But God had a different plan. It was to save you. It was to rescue you. It was to take what the world had swallowed and what Satan had hoped to destroy and bring you back to life. And so he says, and the nation shall not stream to him anymore. Remember, Babylon is the center of the earth. And all of the nations are coming to Babylon for religious instruction, for commercial prosperity, for political unity. But God says, I'm going to... I'm going to judge this system and the nations aren't going to come to you. They're not going to come to you because you're not the, the source of safety. You're not the source of truth. You're not the source of prosperity. I am. That's what the Lord is saying. God's going to judge them. And look what it says. Yes, the wall of Babylon shall fall. Remember the impregnable wall that I just talked about? 300 feet high, 86 feet across. It becomes a type and a picture of this world's defenses. You see, the people who stand in opposition to God, who hate God, who reject the promises of God, who reject the revelation of God, they erect enormous walls. And they think that they're impenetrable. And you know what's sad? Sometimes you think so too. Sometimes you forget just what God had to do in order to save you. Some of you were pretty gnarly. You were gnarly in your thinking and you were gnarly in your living. And you probably remember someone saying, that person is hopeless and helpless. There's no way God could save anyone like you. And then the Lord does the most amazing thing. Those of you who used to didn't believe in God all of a sudden entertain the notion that there might be a God. My friend Lee Strobel gives his testimony about how he sat in a church for years. His wife had become a Christian and he folded his arms and he considered the claims of Christ. And he began to embark on a journey that maybe what the Bible says is true. And the same was true for me. Most of you know that in high school I was voted most likely to go to hell. I know you think that's bad. My brother was voted most likely to marry outside of his own species. That is a dysfunctional family. And then I heard the gospel. I heard the story about Jesus. I heard the story that he might be able to save somebody like me. And I believed him. The Lord promises to destroy Bel and Babylon, and then the Lord will cause the nations to cease their journey to Babylon. The captives will flow out of the city, never to return. The wall will fail. Babylon was the center and the focus of false worship, false commerce, false political systems. It was the center of culture, center of religion, center of government, and now it's going to collapse on its own iniquity because... The Lord will destroy its defenses. And the same is true. People will put up walls, but in the end, the Lord promises. Now, I want you to think this through. In the end, the Lord promises 
to tear down every single wall that has been erected to try and keep God out. Do you understand that this is what the New Testament means when Paul writes that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, And then we see the inevitable judgment for the evil empire. Read with me again from verse 45 to 54. It says, my people go out of the midst of her and let everyone deliver himself from the fierce anger of the Lord. And lest your heart faint and you fear for the rumor that will be heard in the land, a rumor will come one year. And after that, in another year, a rumor will come and violence in the land, ruler against ruler. Let me try and help you understand. This is the third time that the Lord has ordered his people to get out of Babylon. Verse 45, my people go out of the midst of her. The first time was in chapter 50, verse 8. If you just turn the page to chapter 50, verse 8, move from the midst of Babylon, go out of the land of the Chaldeans, it says. And then turn the page again to chapter 51, earlier in the chapter, verse 6. Flee from the midst of Babylon and everyone save his life. You know, how how many times does the Bible have to say something before it becomes really important? I know what you're thinking. Well, being the good Bible scholars that I've trained you to be. Well, you only have to say it once. That's the right answer. Thank you, class. So if the Bible says it once, it's probably important. If the Bible says it twice, more important. If the Bible says it three times in two chapters, what do you suppose the Bible's trying to tell you? Wow, I think I need to really pay attention to what's being said. My people go out of the midst of her and let everyone deliver himself from the fierce anger of the Lord. When my wife is trying to get me, you know, most families, I guess, they have the opposite problem that we have. Um, You know, the girl takes longer. She's at the mirror. She's doing her hair. She's fixing her makeup. She's doing this. She's doing that. And the husband's going, come on, come on. I need you to get going on here. But me, it's just the opposite. My wife's going, stop dilly-dallying. We need to go. We're going to be late. And that's exactly what the text is saying. In light of the certainty of the judgment and in light of the extent of the judgment, all the inhabitants are encouraged to run for it. The Lord's statement, let everyone deliver himself from the fierce anger of the Lord. Break free. Run away from this world. Run away from this world system. But that's not good enough. Because you can run away from religious Babylon and you can run away from commercial Babylon and you can run away from political Babylon. But where are you going to run to? Remember in the New Testament, Jesus looks at his own disciples after everyone has left and he goes, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, where can we go? Only you have the words of life. The Bible doesn't invite you to just simply run from the world. The Bible invites you to run into the arms of Jesus. It's to embrace the forgiveness and the hope that's found in the person of Christ. It's to allow 
both the religious and the commercial and the political Babylon to let you go so that you are free to love and serve the Lord. Jesus is your king. He is the source of your peace. Remember, it was Jesus who said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet he loses his soul? Break free. Don't be conformed into this world. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be poured into this world's way of thinking. Jesus in John 17, he doesn't say, I ask that you take them out of the world. What he wants to do is to take the world out of you. Worldliness isn't that you have a job or or that you work at a bank or even if you run for office. It's not being a politician or a banker. That's not is is what an issue when it's talking about run from the world. It's it's asking you to flee from the promises that the world is making you, that there's peace apart from God, that there's financial prosperity apart from God, that there is religious satisfaction apart from God. That's the promise of the world. And it's a lie. It's a false promise. The Bible says that we're the children of God. We're the children of light and not the children of darkness. When I was a kid, we used to sing a song. We're the children of the light and we're the children of the day. We need not ever stumble in an ever darkened way, though the clouds around us will go grow thick at night. Now I've forgotten the words. Still, Jesus Christ is in your heart. The light of the world is there. That's. The rest of it. That's the point. Elaine said, there is no surer evidence of an unconverted state than to have the things of the world uppermost in our aim, our love and estimation. You know how you can tell if you have a real problem with worldliness? It's when you get up in the morning and the first thing that you think about is this world and the things that this world has to offer. You know how you might have a problem with worldliness? If you live for the things of this world and you focus on the things of this world and you're preoccupied with the things of this world. You know how you might have a problem with worldliness? Is As you tuck yourself into bed at night and you lay your head on the pillow, the last thing you're thinking about is how you're going to survive. That's not what Christians do. You see, Jesus said, don't worry He didn't say, don't worry, be happy. He said, don't worry. He said, pray about everything. Augustine wrote, we can love the world or love God. If we love the world, there will be no room in our heart for the love of God. We can't love both God who is eternal and the world which is transitory. Matthew Henry warned, whatever we have of this world in our hands, our care must be to keep it out of our hearts. Lest it come between us and Christ. Don't let anyone or anything come between you and Jesus. So how are we to think about the world? Well, we know that self is its center. In Ephesians 2, 2, it says you walk according to this world. In the world, pleasure is its pursuit. Having loved this present world, Paul talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 
10. Lust is its food, corruption that is in the world. Applause is its aim. The world wandered after the beast in Revelation 13, 3. Money is its God. Them that are rich in this world, 1 Timothy 6, 17. Satan is its God, the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Reason is its authority. The wisdom of this world, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. The present life is its sphere. This present evil world, Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. And in the world, seeing is believing. But in Christ, believing is seeing. Why? Because we walk by faith and not by sight. And so look what it says in verse 46. And lest your heart faint and you fear for the rumor that will be heard in the land. A rumor that will come one year. And after that, in another year, a rumor will come and a violence in the land. Ruler against ruler. Verse 46 is very difficult to interpret. But let me try and help you. For the children of Israel, for the captives who found themselves in Babylon. There were two kinds of people. Those who couldn't wait for Jeremiah's prophecies to come true, where the economic, political, and religious center collapses. And then another group of people who were terrified that the economic, religious, and political system was about to collapse. What? Yeah, there were people who were deeply divided because they thought if there's a political collapse, if there's an economic collapse, if there's a religious collapse, well, why someone in my family might be hurt. Someone in my family might even be killed. And lest your heart faint and you fear for the rumor that will be heard in the land. The rumor is. Guess what? This is the year that Babylon's going to fall. This is the year that Jeremiah's prophecy is going to come true. Now, by the way, remember, Daniel, the prophet, is going to read this prophecy 60 years later. He's going to spread it out and he's going to begin to weep and cry as he begins to realize that Jeremiah has already predicted that 70 years have been appointed for the children of Israel to be captive in Babylon and that they're going to be released. They don't have any idea that Cyrus is going to come and capture the city and release the captives. As a matter of fact, 200 years later, the walls will collapse. Even by the time of the New Testament, there's still colonies that are living in Babylon. As the day of God's judgment approached, they're not to lose heart. When rumors of violence and overthrow of government were were heard throughout the land, they weren't supposed to panic. And so what does that mean for you and me? Now is not the time to buy guns, gold and groceries and have a bomb shelter in Idaho. If you want to get some land in Idaho just because it's a beautiful place to fish, good on you. If you want to get a little bit of gold in order to have a hedge against the devaluation of the dollar, good on you. But if you're looking for a way to survive the coming collapse of the religious system and the economic system and the political system, it's probably because you're a little too involved in it. This is not where you belong. You're dual citizens. 
You live on this earth, but the satisfying solution to the problems that we have will never be found on this earth. So some will suggest that Babylon was unshakable, unstoppable, unchangeable. But Babylon isn't unshakable, unstoppable, unchangeable. There's only one person who's unshakable, unstoppable, unchangeable. We sing about him, don't we? It's the Lord. Only the eye of faith would be able to see a power stronger and holier that would come and consume the evil empire. And so Jeremiah is inviting the captives who are looking at the 300 foot wall and that's 100 feet high and 86 feet across and saying, what in the world will ever be able to bring down this system? And Jeremiah invites them to look with the eye of faith to the promise of God that this will in fact happen. Near the end of the collapse of the empire, by the way, rumors would fly. Kings and kingdoms would vie for power and control. And by the way, by the time Nebuchadnezzar is dead and by the time his son rules and then by the time his grandson rules, that's in the book of Daniel, where you hear about the drunken party that's thrown and you hear about the writing on the wall where an invisible hand becomes visible and it writes many, many, tekel, you farson, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And so there's a historical collapse. But it becomes a type and a picture of a future collapse. You see, we still live in a world where people think that this world is going to survive apart from God and apart from Christ. But the Bible has made it abundantly clear that the Lord has designated a time for judgment. Remember, Jesus said, let not your heart faint, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And so in verse 47, look what it says. Therefore, behold, the days are coming that I will bring judgment on the carved images of Babylon. Her whole land shall be ashamed and her slain shall fall in her midst. Then the heavens and the earth, it says in verse 48, and all that is in them shall sing joyously over Babylon. Here's the picture. The picture is when the economic system crashes, when the political system crashes, when the religious system crashes, the angels in heaven are going to rejoice. For the plunderers shall come to her from the north, says the Lord. So the picture is of a future judgment. Now, by the way, the Medes and the Persians do come from the north. But I believe that verse 48 is also a prophecy about a future war that's going to take place in the Middle East. I'm going to strongly suggest to you that there is the possibility that Iraq might become prosperous and even become a global power in the not too distant future. If they actually achieve self-sufficiency, their oil reserves could generate enough income to build an indescribable empire. But the truth is, the Middle East has a few more tumultuous years, I think, ahead of it. One Bible teacher wrote, 
They had to place their confidence in God in verses 47 and 48. Trust in the Lord was the absolute essential because his judgment was certain. He would destroy Babylon and her idols. Then heaven and earth would shout for joy over the fall of the wicked, brutal Babylonians, unquote. And look at verse 49. As Babylon has caused the slain of Israel to fall, so at Babylon the slain of all the earth shall fall. The Lord draws attention. To the sins of Babylon, as Babylon has caused the slain of Israel to fall. Babylon came in and murdered almost to the point of extinction the Jewish people. Babylon was guilty of violence. Babylon was guilty of killing God's people as well as other people. And so part of the point of the judgment that God promises is to a violent nation. You can expect judgment. Here's the bottom line. You already know it from the New Testament. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. A violent people will meet a violent end. And so in verse 50, you have you who have escaped the sword. Get away. In other words, you survived the brutality of the Babylonians. Get away. Do not stand still. That now is not the time for freezing. Remember the Lord afar off and let Jerusalem come to your mind. You know, there's three things that you can do when you're under attack. Run. Hide. Or fight. My advice always. If you can run, run. If you can hide, hide. But if whoever it is doesn't give you any place to run and there's no place to hide, then you have no other option but to fight. You have to do something. And look what it says. And let Jerusalem come to your mind. Do you understand what's happening? Even in that passage of Jeremiah's prophecy, Jerusalem is destroyed. Jerusalem is a ruin. But here's part of the promise. You're going to go back to Jerusalem because God has unfinished business with you in that holy place and at that holy time. And so when you find yourself in that position of darkness and difficulty, remind yourself and speak to yourself about the plans and the purposes and that the promises that God has made for you. And look what it says. Verse 51, we are ashamed because we have heard reproach. Shame has covered our faces for strangers have come into the sanctuaries of the Lord's house. I I need you to understand what the writer is saying. Babylon was guilty of persecuting, insulting, shaming, disgracing God's people. The captives felt ashamed for what the Babylonians had done to them and what they had done to God's temple. And they had come to the conclusion, what are we thinking? There's nothing there. There's no place to go back to. There is no Judah. There is no Jerusalem. Even if we could go back, there's nothing there. But God promises and he says, I've got to tell you something. I'm going to prepare the place. And I'm going to prepare you. 
Sometimes when you find yourself in difficulty, you've abandoned something or you've been shamed or you've had a shameful experience and you're thinking, I can't go back. That's part of the point. The captives felt ashamed if the Lord wasn't strong enough to protect his own house. How in the world is he going to defeat the Babylonian Empire? If they left Babylon, how are they going to simply go home to the shame and to the ruin? And I need you to understand that this is exactly the way the disciples felt after the execution of Jesus. What what are you talking about, Jesus? You're supposed to be the Messiah. You're supposed to be the Lord. You're supposed to be this great person who's going to liberate us and reconcile us to God. And I need you to understand something that when the disciples disciples saw Jesus arrested and then they saw him crucified and they saw him buried. They were ashamed. And their lives were destroyed. And they they didn't even for a moment, they didn't maybe one or two might have had a hint, but most of them had no real belief that Jesus was going to really rise from the dead. If God can't protect his own son, why should I trust him? And sometimes you think that way. If God can't, if God can't keep me from harm and God can't keep me from trouble and God can't keep me from difficulty, then why should I trust him? Because the pain and the difficulty and the harm might be the very thing that will serve not as the weight to take you away from God, but the anchor that will keep you in the grip of God's grace and God's mercy and God's dependence. And so, in verse 52, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring judgment on her carved images. That's religious Babylon. Throughout all her land, the wounded shall groan. Verse 53, though Babylon were to mount up to heaven and though she were to fortify the height of her strength, yet from me plunderers would come to her, says the Lord. Think about what the passage is saying. Though Babylon were to mount to heaven. Remember Genesis chapter 6? They built a tower to try to lay siege against God. Here's God saying, well, what if Babylon builds another tower? Hey, God destroyed the first tower, but uh, what if we build another tower? And the Lord says, and though she were to fortify the height of her strength, yet from me, plunders would not come to her. Here's here's the bottom line. Babylon is guilty of pride and arrogance. Can Babylon mount an effort to assault heaven and overthrow God? Can Satan overthrow God? Can the commercial system, the religious system, the economic system of this world overthrow God? Can the foolish thinking of human beings who in their mind think that there is no God and that the Bible's not true and that Jesus isn't Lord, is that going to upset the plan of God? That's the right answer. If you took the combined armies of all of humanity and all of its resources... They still won't be able to thwart the plan of God. And that, my friends, is a picture of what the end of the world is going to look like. A united human family, once again, in rebellion against God, 
In verse 54, the sound of a cry comes from Babylon and great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans. The Lord's testimony is from the very northern part of the Babylonian kingdom to the southern part of the Babylonian kingdom, the eastern portion of the Babylonian kingdom, the western portion of the Babylonian kingdom, all of its frontiers and all of its borders, people will groan because the collapse is going to take place. A final retribution. Look at verse 55. Because the Lord is plundering Babylon and silencing her loud voice. The loud voice is the arrogant, prideful voice. Though her waves roar like great waters and the noise of their voice is uttered because the plunderer comes against her, against Babylon, and her mighty men are taken. Every one of their bows are broken. Their defenses are broken. For the Lord is the God of recompense. I am the Lord. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. He will surely repay. Look what it says in verse 56. He will surely repay. The moment that God promises the people in Babylon that he will repay. I need you to think about that. The children of Israel and Judah are in Babylon, surrounded by the walls, reading Jeremiah's prediction. Do you think he brought comfort? Yes. That's exactly what it did. In verse 57, and I will make drunk her princes and wise men, her governors, her deputies, her mighty men. Drunk, of course, altered state of consciousness due to inebriation. Because remember, they think that they're smart. They think that no matter what God has planned, they will be able to somehow circumvent the plan of God. That they will be able to undermine the plan of God. That they will be able to overthrow the prophecy of God. And they shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake. It's a poetic expression, which means they're going to die. They're going to die, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken and her high gates shall be burned with fire. The people will labor in vain and the nations because of the fire and they shall be weary. Here's the prophecy that God gives concerning the people of Babylon. You're going to live your whole life building a wall that's going to eventually crumble. You're going to spend your life making a gate that will in the end burn with fire. And this is the testimony of the Bible of every single person who decides to live their life apart from God and apart from Christ and apart from his love and apart from his promises and apart from his plans. And so. In verse 59, the symbolic scroll, the word which Jeremiah, the prophet, commanded Sariah, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, when he went with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. And Sariah was the quartermaster. Jeremiah is going to give a message to Sariah. He's, He's one of the king's advisors, and he's also the brother of guess who? Baruch. They're the ancient Hebrew version of the righteous brothers. Baruch and Sariah. So Jeremiah has an in with Sariah. And this prophecy is sort of chronologically out of place. Jeremiah is going to give the message to Sariah. Now, the trip was made, it says, 
in the fourth year of King Zedekiah, somewhere around the time that Zedekiah and the four nations were plotting a revolt. We have to go all the way back to chapter 27, verses 1 through 10. This is where Zedekiah and the king of Ammon and a couple of other kings, they're basically plotting to overthrow the king of Babylon. So Zedekiah and the other kings go to Babylon to answer the rumors of a plot and to ensure their loyalty. And whatever the purpose of the king's trip, Sariah was responsible. He's the quartermaster. That means he's in charge of food and lodging. So he goes ahead of the king in order to make accommodations for the official entourage of the king. We've had a lot of presidential candidates in our city lately. We had one presidential candidate at Red Rocks last night. We had another presidential candidate, I guess, downtown at City Park. Now, when presidential presidents and presidential candidates come to town, what happens? Yeah, traffic jams, all Hades breaks loose. Because, you know, when you're the leader of the free world, you think everything revolves around you. And even if you anticipate that you might become the head of the free world, you think all things revolve around you. Sariah is responsible for the king's arrangements. And by the way, presidential candidates and presidents don't come to town without preparation. Sariah has to make preparation. When Jeremiah heard that he's going to Babylon, he uses the opportunity to send one of his living sermons with him to announce God's judgment to the people of Babylon, to strengthen the faith of the exiles who've been deported. The prophet has written the prophecy on a scroll, the Hebrew word sefer, and now he challenges Sariah to do four things. Read out loud the word of judgment against the brutal, wicked nation in verse 61. Proclaim the fact that Babylon's going to be utterly destroyed and desolate forever, verse 62. Symbolize God's judgment by tying a stone to the scroll and throwing it into the river, verse 63. So we read. So Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that would come upon Babylon. All these words that are written against Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you arrive in Babylon and see it and read all these words, then you shall say, O Lord, you who have spoken against this place to cut it off so that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but it shall be desolate forever. Can you imagine that's you have to give this message to the king of Babylon? That would be like going to the White House and saying to the president, everything in this country is going to burn. From New York to California, from Chicago to New Orleans, from Florida to Washington, D.C. I want you to imagine an America that's not America, that's completely gone. And his message, I want you to imagine a Babylon that no longer exists. It's no longer the religious capital of the world. It's no longer the commercial center of the world. It's no longer the political center of the earth. 
And I want you to symbolize God's judgment by tying a stone to a scroll and throwing it into the Euphrates River in verse 63. Now it shall be when you have finished reading this book that you shall tie a stone to it and throw it out into the Euphrates. It would be, again, like if you had a visitation and the leadership of all of the United States of America was in New Orleans, Louisiana, and you tie this testimony to a rock and you throw it into the Mississippi River and it starts plunging through the water into the Mississippi mud. And what is the message, of course? Verse 64, then you shall say, thus Babylon shall sink and not rise from the catastrophe that I will bring upon her and they shall be weary. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. In other words, this is Jeremiah's way of saying, guess what? I don't have anything else to say. I've said everything that I need to say. And at the end, thus Babylon shall sink and not rise. And here the message of Jeremiah ends. These are the last words of the prophet. Remember how the book opened. The words of Jeremiah. Chapter 1, verse 1. The great book concludes with the statement. Babylon. Shall sink. And not rise. Question. King of Babylon hears it. People of Babylon hear it. They repent. They believe the message of Jeremiah. They all get saved and they all live happily ever after. Yeah, that's not how it ends. It would be great if that's the way that it ends, but that's not the way it ends. They refuse to repent of their sin. And they refused to look to God for salvation. They were to face the punishment of God through the appointed agents. The Jews, the Babylonians. The Babylonians, the Persians. The Persians, the Greeks. The Greeks, the Romans. And Rome would disintegrate under its own weight and corruption. But a world system will arise again. A world system that seeks to do what has always been sought to done, been done since Genesis chapter 6. There is a group of people who want to unite this world with one language, one culture, one religion, and one commercial system. God's prophecy, Babylon shall fall. If they repented of their sins and they turned to the Lord, he promised to restore them and return them to the land. And when Jeremiah told the captives to leave Babylon, do you realize that some of them thought, why should I? I'm comfortable in Babylon. I'm safe in Babylon. Why would I want to exchange a life of plenty For a life of meager. Why would I want to exchange riches for poverty? Why would I want to exchange security for insecurity? Why do I want to exchange a comfortable life for an uncomfortable life? God's answer. There's no future in Babylon. There's blessing and there's beginning in Christ. There's no future. In this world. 
There's no future in this world's religion. Remember what this world's religion is. Anything that is in opposition to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The captives in Babylon saw the walls and the amazing fortifications. And some of them thought the walls will never be breached. They will never be broken. And the kingdom will never come to an end. They thought that the walls of Babylon could repel any enemy. Even if that enemy was God himself. Do you realize that the vast majority of the children of Judah and Jerusalem who had the opportunity to leave, they didn't go? Do you realize that the vast majority of people who hear the gospel, who hear the story of Jesus, the story of his love, the story of his substitutionary death, the story of his resurrection and his willingness to forgive people's sin and be reconciled to God, the vast majority of the people won't believe the story but the story remains true no wonder in revelation chapter 14 verse 8 as a matter of fact this is how we're going to close our service i want you all to turn to revelation chapter 14 verse 8 revelation chapter 14 verse 8 And I want you to stand, everyone, and I want you to read with me Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. Because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Apparently what we just read is also a future message. Babylon is falling. Is falling. Don't make plans to stay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. What an amazing book and what an amazing prophecy. Lord, we're going to be looking at the prophecy a little bit closer in the weeks ahead. But Lord, one thing we know for sure. This world and its system can't last. So Lord, we pray that we would trust Jesus. That we would look to Jesus. To be the author and the finisher of our confident faith. That we trust Jesus to love us and we trust Jesus to forgive us and we trust Jesus to reconcile us to yourself. And Lord, for that person who looks at the walls and they seem so high and so thick and so impenetrable. Lord, I pray that you would give them a vision That they would walk by faith and not by sight. And that they would understand that those walls of necessity must come down. In Jesus name. Amen.